Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 361. And today I'm joined by John Altman to discuss his unique methods for targeting mature bucks from the big woods of Maine to the coastal islands of the Atlantic Ocean. All right, welcome to the Wired Ton Podcast, brought to you by Onyx. I'm joined today by John Altman for a really cool chat, I think at least. Uh, John is a diehard deer hunter from the east coast of Maine, who's been chasing mature bucks across the northeast for decades now. And he's doing it in some really unique and interesting ways. Uh, you might be aware of what I'm talking about if you've watched the new show over on Realtree 365 called Sea Bucks. Well, in short, what he's doing... He's chasing big deer in the big woods, and he's boating and kayaking to islands and finding giant bucks out in those spots too. And he's getting great deer in all these different unique, tough scenarios. So whether you hunt in the Northeast or not, his ideas, I think, can be applicable. You know, when you're listening, think about how you can take little bits of his tactics and apply them to your own scenario. Whether that's in the upper Great Lakes or the deep south, you know, his water access tips are really interesting. His ideas for hunting big timber could be applicable in a lot of scenarios. It just might be the trick you need to take your hunting to the next level. So this is a fun one. We dive into some really, really interesting scenarios. I'm excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, I want you to get right into it. So thank you for listening and enjoy. All right, with me now on the line is John Altman. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's great to talk to you. I'm excited for this one. I Every year, I tell myself I need to do a better job of talking to folks up in the Northeast. There's so many listeners up there, and I just inevitably fail. That is a, an annual failure on my part. So, so, John, I'm putting the pressure on you because you are trying to help me achieve one of my yearly goals. Can you do that? <laughs> Yeah, I can. I can help. I'll try to represent as best as I can for the Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, so that said, then John, can you just give me a little background as to who you are and your hunting experiences leading up to this point, and uh, and what kind of brings you here today? Sure, sure. So I've been uh, in Maine for about twenty five years. Um, I came uh, really as a building contractor. That's what brought me to the area. Um, and uh, the building market was quite strong. So I'm on the coast of Maine. Um, 
pretty much when you come into Maine and uh, when you cross the border down in New Hampshire, you you sort of parallel the coast and you just start to go east. You don't really go north anymore. And so we're we're on that kind of end of that uh, direction of going east uh, on the coast. And um, that's sort of what brought me to the area. I, I found myself uh, in my way into deer hunting kind of late in the game. I didn't really start to deer hunt until my early 20s. Um, I shot my first deer when I was about 22 years old and I was all by myself. Uh, I didn't really have anybody to sort of mentor. Um, and it's sort of been that way all the way through, you know, I just sort of had the opportunity, um, to just sort of venture out and, um, it's been sort of, that's kind of been my road. So, um, so, so we, we like to hunt big deer, you know, big, mature whitetails. Um, I think hunting is one of those things that, you know, is, 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 um, in the eye of the beholder, you know, I I like to, I like to chase big deer, but, um, I think it's great just to be out there and some people need to just go out and shoot a deer and put it in the freezer. And, and, and I certainly understand that too. Um, but our passion, uh, is really big, mature whitetail, um, to us, that's, you know, a deer that's five years old or older, you know, that's really when we feel the deer is, is mature. Um, they're hard to find, but they're out there and, um, we spend a lot of time looking for them, um, and then keeping an eye on them. We sort of follow them along, you know, we, we get pretty excited when we find, you know, three-year-olds and, and then we can stay on them into four and then we're pretty confident they're settled down enough. They're going to be there and. And um, we keep an eye on them for a while, and, and uh, sometimes we get an opportunity at them. <laughs> I know how that goes. You know, so much of so much of the whitetail hunting media out there, this podcast included, uh, kind of comes out of the Midwest or of some part of the agricultural world, that part of the country. So a lot of the, the tactics and strategies and the deer behavior you hear about is is kind of centered around that stuff. What I'm curious from you is is how much of that stuff is applicable to what you do or how your deer behave or do you feel like you're, you're operating on a totally different playbook because the deer and the habitat and the, the strategies needed are so different up in the northeast yeah um i think it's really it's very very different um a lot of it just starts with the, the way the land is managed you know i mean we're heavily heavily wooded so we don't have a lot of ag um, so it's very easy for these deer to hide and, and mature. Um, but that being said, it's also very difficult to find them. Um, so our hunting strategies, I think are quite a bit different from the Midwest. Um, we can hunt, um, pretty much the law in Maine is that if it's not posted, you can hunt it. And so that's very different than, than most of the rest of the country where, you know, you have leases and private land and stuff that you just can't access. So, so we can hunt in a lot of different places, and I think that is one of the reasons um, we've had such great success because we can move around very easily. If if one piece isn't working or or we don't have a mature deer in, on that piece of ground at any given time, you know we can just move. And you know we have a lot of ground that we cover. Um, so you know we have that working for us. Um, but, you know, I don't have a field that I don't have a 75-acre bean field that I can glass, you know, preseason or even during the season and, and start to figure out patterns of, of mature deer and where they're coming out. 
Um, that just doesn't exist. Um, we have, you know, a 10 acre field a pretty big field <laughs> on the coast. Uh, we do have some ag, uh, but it's a little more inland. And, uh, and then when you go up north, you know, there's quite a bit of, of blueberry ground up there, and potato fields, broccoli fields, things like that. Um, but the deer, the deer don't behave the same here. You know, they, they have an extremely wide variety of, um, forage that they you know they browse they they eat so many different things and i and i'm sure they do in the midwest too but but in maine it, it's just amazing how they can survive um you know in these mature um stands of fur and spruce and uh you know eating mushrooms and browsing on things and i mean the, the amount of food the amount of different variety of food that they consume in one day i think is, is it's just it's just mind-boggling so. yeah it, it seems like given that you know, there's so many different food sources. There's so much timber that deer could be bedded, I'd imagine, in, in so many different locations. It's got to be really hard just to find them, just to find where you need to start. How do you start that process for you guys? How do you find that beginning point where those deer are? Yeah, so so we really, you know, to hunt these big mature deer, I mean, we really use, we use cameras a lot. Um, I, I wish I could, I could sort of deny that, but I can't. <laughs> you know, we... We use um, these, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm kind of of the old school, right? I, I really don't like the technology. I, I don't like it when that, you know, comes into play, especially when you harvest a big mature deer. But I don't really know how else to do it in the Northeast, you know, if, if you're really looking for those mature mature whitetail. Um, you can't you, you can't just expect that you're just going to go out and sit in the woods and find one. I mean, you might. I, 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 I kind of believe that everybody gets, um, you know, a lucky buck in their hunting career, you know, or they might get a lucky buck. Um, one that they just happen, happen to, you know, sort of get on. I mean, that happened to me once. And, um, you know, I was bow hunting and I was hunting in a new area and, um, I really didn't know what was in there. I just had seen really good sign and I pushed up in there and, and I shot a beautiful, you know, mature, um, whitetail and, and, that was my lucky buck. You know, I didn't really know. I didn't even know he was there. But is that going to happen again? Probably not. You know, I, I, I doubt it. Um, so we so we, we find them. Um, and then, you know, we just collect. Uh, we continue to collect information. We take notes. We actually keep log books. Um, now with the pictures, it's, it's really easy to organize, you know, all of that information so that we can see you know, when particular deer are in certain areas at, at different times of the year. And, um, we can, we've, I've made a lot of conclusions, um, about deer and deer behavior based on all of that logged information, especially when you, when you chase these deer for multiple years. Um, you know, we've had some deer, well, well, Bigfoot that we shot last season, you know, we had been chasing that deer for six years. Um, so we had a lot of in, intel on him. Um, we had studied him for quite a while. So um, that's how we. That's really the key to how we kind of zero in on where the deer are at at a given time. And and sort of the most valuable piece of information for us is is where that deer lives. You know, where what is his home? You know, where's his bedroom? And once we get that figured out, um, we can then you know sort of develop a hunting strategy um so so that's that's the that's really the the 
critical piece that we're looking for is really where his bedroom is. And sometimes we, we pin that down by just finding out where he isn't, you know, it's like, we'll put cameras out and that information is as valuable to us as, as where he is, you know, because then, then we can, we can cross areas out and say, well, you know, early part of September, he's just not, he's not in this zone at all. And, and then, you know, we don't have to worry about that piece, you know, and, and, the deer behavior gets pretty solidified, especially when they get at that old, you know, they really start to, to, um, sort of become creatures of habit. Um, and we see them repeat themselves year after year, sometimes, you know, to within the week, if not even to the day. And, and it's really bizarre when you start seeing that kind of map out. It's crazy. So, now, yeah. what about, where you specifically put these cameras when you're trying to get that intel, whether it's just to, to figure out if there's a good deer in this general area or when you're trying to find the bedroom of a specific buck, it, it seems so different than what yeah. I'm doing here in the Midwest where I can, you know, you set cameras on a scrape on a field edge or you know there's an obvious pinch point between two fields. There's much more clear cut sign yeah. and evidence of, okay, this is a good spot to put a camera or some states you can put out bait or a mineral or something. How do you get your cameras set and how do you put them in spots that they're actually going to get pictures and the intel you need? Yeah. Well, we can't do any of that baiting. Um, well, I mean, you can feed deer after a certain time in the year, uh, after the hunting season closes and stuff like that. Um, but we can't really do that when we're trying to collect, you know, information that's going to be kind of critical for hunting. Um, so, it's, we do the same thing. I mean, we have scrapes, you know, scrape lines that we'll put cameras on. Um, we have a lot of natural food source that we feel like the deer are going to go to first. Like for instance, apples, you know, we have a lot of wild apple trees and that to us is a real go-to, um, you know, deer will, um, you know, every apple, every wild apple tastes different and the deer know it, you know? And so, and so do we, I mean, we pick them up all the time and we're like, that, that apple's no good. This one's really good. Well, pretty much parallels for the deer, you know, if, if you like it, they like it. And, um, so, so that's one of the places we get a lot of our early season information because those apples start falling and then, you know, it's, is, is that deer under that apple tree at two o'clock in the morning or is he under that apple tree, you know, at, in the last hour of daylight? And then that's going to give you, you know, from that, you can make conclusions on, well, how far away was he when he got up? And so, you know, we start zeroing it, it down like that. Um, and I'm not going to say that we know just exactly where that deer is bedded, but, you know, we like to think that we can get, you know, basically within a few hundred yards of where that deer is. Um, and I think sometimes we're even a lot closer than that. Um, but it, but if you can, you know, if you can get that close, then you've got, you know, you've got a pretty good chance when he gets on his feet, if you've, if you've still got an hour of daylight, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to increase the chances of, you know, intercepting that deer. Um, so I don't particularly like to have cameras in spots where we are going to hunt. Um, but that being said, I I mean, the reason I can say that is because a lot of these deer, we, we study for multiple years. So, um, I can eventually, you know, make that conclusion that this is where I'm probably going to hunt him. This is where we're going to have our best chance of intercepting him. So let's not put a camera in there now. But, but the year before I might've had a camera there or even, or even the year before that. So, um, I feel like the deer are a lot more sensitive to cameras than any of us really believe. And 
we've started putting cameras up really high. We, we oftentimes will climb trees, you know, we'll take sticks in with us and, you know, get 10 feet up in a tree and aim the camera almost, you know, not straight down, but on an angle, we, we collect less information that way, but I feel like getting it, you know, out of sight is a really good idea. Um, so we, you know, Bigfoot, this deer that we just killed last season, um, I, I really believe that um, we killed him because of the decision we made not to put cameras in where we were going to hunt him. Um, we had done that every year prior, and I think just that foot traffic of going in and checking those cameras um, was enough to just give him the edge and push him, you know, a few hours back. Um, and he was, you know, he, his activity was, he was still coming into that area. He would tolerate it a little bit, but it was always, you know, nocturnal movement. So, um, you know, I, I, I think you can overdo it with cameras really easily. Um, but, but on the other hand, I don't think we can do what we do without them, (laughs) you know? So it's one of those double-edged swords. It's a fine line. So, so this buck, Bigfoot, yeah. Um, I saw, I watched the hunt for this buck on, on this new show that you're part of called Sea Bucks. And it's a wild situation because I think this is a- absolutely has to be pointed out. This big buck that you were hunting, you killed him on an island in the ocean, right? I mean, off the coast of Maine, yeah. you are taking a boat into across the water to an island. How does everything you just described with your trail cameras and that kind of scouting, is that is that applies directly to the island hunting just as much as the mainland Big Woods hunting, or do you have to do things different on the islands? Um, no, I think, you know, our, our strategy is kind of the same in terms of trying to zero in on that core area for the deer, the home base. But, but um, you know, the island just, it that island hunting thing just brings a whole other set of, uh, challenges, you know, just from everything from the water crossings to being out there to navigation, you know, in the dark, you know, overnights, weather, all that stuff. Um, but these islands that we're hunting, you know, most of them are, um, you know, it's a, it takes about a half an hour to an hour and a half to run in a small skiff out to them. Um, so, you know, we, we, as much as we like to hunt out there, there's just a lot of times that we, we can't even get out there because of the weather. Um, so we have a, we have a, uh, you know, we always have a backup plan. We know when we want to go, but oftentimes we can't get out there then. Um, and we get pushed off or sometimes we get stuck out there too, um, longer than we'd anticipated. So it, it just, it brings a whole nother level of, of, uh, sort of challenges to it, which we really like, you know, we're into that, um, sort of expedition style hunting, um, but, but really, I mean, I think that the information we're collecting is the same, whether we're on an island or whether we're in a, you know, what we might consider like a 1500 acre, you know, block of woods that we're, that we're working on, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's the same, same concept. Okay. Can you, can you walk me through that process with Bigfoot? Cause it sounds like it was many, many years long yeah. of trying to figure out this buck. And, and yeah. I'm curious in particular the, about the unique aspects, given that it was an Island. I, I got to imagine access is really unique. How your wind is manipulated by the Island or just by the fact you can blow your wind out of the water. I don't know. I'm just, I'm very intrigued by that whole thing. Um, could you walk us through from the, be- from the beginning of how you found this Island, that buck, everything? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we hunt a lot of different islands. 
You know, we don't just, it's not just one. Um, Maine has this very unique um, coastal island opportunity that um, starts in September. And it's, I think it's been about 19 years now that they've had coastal island hunting. And it started because they needed the deer to be managed out on the islands. You know, people weren't really going out to them and the deer populations were such that they wanted, you know, more deer to be taken off the islands. So they gave us additional tags, um, which really as a, as a hunter, particularly as a bow hunter was a real bonus because Maine is pretty, is pretty much always been a one tag state. So you, you, you were get, you're given one tag and, you know, if you're an upcoming bow hunter and you need to get that experience, it's kind of hard because you get, you know, if you're lucky, you get to shoot one deer and, and you're done. Um, and we all know how much sort of unfolds after you take that shot. I mean, that's, that's sort of, you know, half the hunt right there, if not more than half the hunt. And, um, so, for, so this Island opportunity was huge for us, you know, and we started going out there year one out to different islands. Um, and we would, you know, we would harvest does. You could harvest multiple does. You could shoot a second buck, um, a second to your mainland tag. Um, so it, it was a really great opportunity for us to develop, you know, hunting skills. Um, so that's kind of how we got into it. And then, you know, it just evolved to the point where I think deer numbers started to come into check and um, we were less, you know, excited about shooting does and we sort of we're more excited about, you know, zeroing in on bigger, mature whitetails. And, um, we found that, you know, if you let these deer walk, you know, if you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old, you know, you really are opening the door to something much bigger, um, unfolding for you. And, and, um, that was, you know, that was just kind of part of that whole learning curve for us. You know, I mean, we, we were, were very much like a lot of people, whereas that first buck that walked in, you know, and if you had a good shot, you took it, you know, and I think for a lot of folks, that's, that's Maine, you know, that is the hunting opportunity in Maine. And I, I don't have, you know, I don't have any problem with that. I completely understand that, but, but we, 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 a long time ago, we decided to just sort of let those deer walk by and, and, and then sort of see what was going to happen. And we realized, wow, there's, we, we really have some giants, you know, we have some old deer. Um, so that's, that's where it all started. You know, that's how this whole Island thing started for us. And then, um, you know, we've just taken it to the point where, um, we have access to different islands. Again, um, some of the islands are, are privately owned. Um, some of them are, um, owned by the state. Some of them have conservation easements. So there's sort of a different package of goods that come with every, every island. And so we spend a lot of time, um, sort of analyzing that and trying to figure out, you know, where we can and where we can't hunt. And, and if we can hunt what we can and can't do. Um, and so, so then we, we sort of take that to access in terms of how far away the island is, what's involved, what kind of piece of water we have to cross. We use these small 18-foot Lund Alaskan boats, um, which, are, which are quite seaworthy, but it, it doesn't take much to, to uh, put yourself in a compromised position, you know. Um, so, so we are, you know, we're constantly kind of dictated by seas, wind, direction, storms, things like that. 
Um, so, so with that in mind, you know, having a lot of different opportunities, a lot of different islands that you can go to is really helpful because you can, um, you can kind of based off the weather, you can adjust your plans. Um, you know, some of them are are further than others. Um, and then we often get out there and we camp, um, for, you know, a week at a time. Um, and then we, we, usually access our tree stands via kayaks so when we're going out we're we also have these uh sit on top kayaks in tow um and we found that um those really have increased our our chances our uh our odds in terms of getting close to deer uh just because we don't have to use an aluminum boat um throw an anchor in you know even even when you're being just as quiet as you possibly can you're 100 yards offshore you throw that anchor in or you came in with your, your outboard. Um, it just, it just sets the deer off. So, uh, four or five years ago, we started, um, sort of camping in one spot and then we'll paddle a mile or two. Sometimes sort of, sometimes we'll circumnavigate the Island if we have to paddle all the way around the other side so that we can come in really quietly with these kayaks. Um, we have a, you know, we have a 12 foot tide here in Maine. So there's a lot of water moving in and out. It's a very rocky shoreline. So, um, these kayaks are nice because you can come in at low tide and you can pick them right up and, and walk them up to the high tie line and tie them to a tree. That's nice. Um, What's the brand of those? You can actually, you know, so we use ocean kayak. That's what we have been really, you know, happy with. Um, they make a lot of different sizes and um, the other thing I really like about those boats is they're, they're sealed hulls. So, um, it's kind of like a big floating, you know, barge, if you will. And, um, it's just a peace of mind knowing that you have a couple of those in tow or even in your boat with you when you're in some compromised, um, conditions, uh, that, you know, the water's, water's pretty cold. You can't, you can't survive in the main water for very long, even in September, um, so knowing that you have something that's not sinkable, um, is, is a peace of mind, you know? Um, so then, you know, we, we, uh, we, we sort of take advantage of, of being on the Island for that block of time, you know, a week at a time. And, and, um, we don't, we don't push it. The wind is, is really complicated, um, because, you know, it, it, it gets affected by the, the rising and the setting of the sun. And then just what happens on the water, the, the direction of the swell, you know, sometimes we'll think the wind is perfect. We'll go to access our stand and we'll, we'll round a point on the Island and we'll start to go into our stand. And it's exactly the opposite of what we thought it was, you know, and that's just something that you have to have to deal with. Um, that particular hunt on Bigfoot, uh, we, we had to give up quite a bit for that hunt. That was a sit that um, we knew the chances were really good based on the information we'd collected on that deer over the years that he would he would still be right in that zone. Um, but I, I remember walking in and um, feeling like we were giving up probably 50% of what we were trying to hunt. Um, but it was, it was one of those decisions that we made cause I felt pretty confident about the rest of what we had, you know? Um, and I think, I think that's, you know, that's, it, that's 
very different than hunting the mainland, you know, like, you know, when you're on an Island, you kind of, you have, you don't have a whole lot of places you can go. Um, so you, you definitely have to be flexible. You have to be willing to give up a little more, um, in terms of wind direction and stuff like that. Can you, can you describe, uh, this area? Like where was this area that you zeroed in on him? What was the kind of stuff he was living in? What did you learn over those previous years? Cause didn't you have three, four, five years of history with pictures and stuff leading up to this particular hunt? Yes, we did. We had five years worth of pictures with him. So, um, yeah, so, um, I, you know, it was, he was, he came into what, what I would call sort of an old apple orchard, uh, sort of homestead area. There was an old stone foundation, you know, you wouldn't really see it unless you really spent a lot of time there, but, but there was an old stone foundation there. And, um, so, you know, he, it was, it was an edge basically. He was not far from what we would consider to be an edge here in the Northeast. You know, it was, it was a sort of uh, transition from mature uh, pine spruce um, forest with some elevation that then broke out into sort of a fern area. And then, um, got into some growth that you would see kind of, uh, that might have grown up in an old field, you know, which is very different than that pine spruce, you know, stand. And, um, you know, as we all know, a lot of, you know, deer love the edge. Right. And so they're always kind of, they're always kind of on that edge. And, um, so he came, you know, he was probably bedded in the, in the shade on a knoll. Uh, when we set up on him, I think he was probably 150 yards away from us at most. Um, and, um, you know, it, I think it was, it was so early. It was like four 30 in the afternoon, you know, it was, I mean, we'd been in the tree for, you know, maybe settled down for a half an hour. And, um, I saw Bigfoot pick his head up. And, and I, and, and the thing that's so incredible about that is we have never seen this deer, you know, we have pictures of him, but we have never seen him with our eyes. Um, so when he picked his head up, I, I just, you know, I basically, I felt like we'd won, you know, cause just because I saw him, you know, that was like, wh- whether I was going to get a chance to shoot him or not. I mean, he was like 70 yards away and I thought, well, you know, I don't know if it's going to, if it's going to go our way or not, but, but we got to see him, you know, that was yeah. a huge victory. Um, and so, but then it was like, you know, it was like everything we knew was was correct about him i mean he did just exact it was like he was on a, on a hooking line you know i mean he just came right down what we expected him to do he just he was going right to a particular apple tree which our 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 information said that that was a tree that was his preference that was the apple that he liked the most that was always the apple that fell first you know i mean those little things like that you know if you study an area long enough, you figure that stuff out. You know, it's like we knew that that tree didn't produce a lot of apples. They were sweet. They, they would fall early. Um, and, and that, you know, oftentimes we would get pictures of him and, um, we happened to run a couple of cameras in this area. And so, um, years prior. And so, you know, we would be, we could make those conclusions. He came there, he ate that apple first, half an hour later, maybe he was over on another one. Um, but that's where we were set up and, um, he just came right in and, and he just, you know, he just did exactly what we thought he was going to do. Um, I was afraid to stop him. I mean, anybody that watches that footage can show and there's 
probably have to wonder, well, why did he stop him? And I just, I was afraid, you know, I was afraid to just introduce anything other than what was absolutely natural for him. And, um, and I just thought he was going to bolt. So, so when I shot him, you know, he got a half a step on me, you know, he was walking through the trees and there was, you can't really tell from the footage, but there was quite a few, uh, young poplar trees that were in there. And, you know, those were definitely working on me when I made that shot. And, um, but he got a, he got a half a step on me and, you know, my arrow was six inches further back than I wanted it to be. And I knew it, you know, immediately I knew exactly what had happened, but I knew, I also knew he was, de- he was a dead deer, you know, so it's just going to be a hard recovery. So would you look yeah, at that, that deer really taught us a lot. Yeah. Would you do anything different looking back on it, specifically on the shot? I, I know you, you recovered him, but it was a tough recovery. Um, did you do what you had yeah. to do or would, did you learn something from that that you would change next time around? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been on a track that I haven't learned, you know, something or a lot of things. Um, but, um, no, I don't, I, you know, that's, that it, it was what it was. I, I, um, you know, in hindsight, could I have waited? I, you know, he, he was going to pick up an apple. I could have maybe waited for him to get to that apple and shot him, but I might've had a tree in the way too. You know, I, I, I mean, I usually make those decisions on instinct and my instincts told me that it was time to shoot him. Uh, I knew Josh had the camera on him. I knew, I knew everything was good on that end. Josh and I have spent so much time in the woods and, um, I just knew he would have, you know, he was going to let me know if there was a problem. And, and, uh, so I knew Josh was good. Um, I don't think it shows in the footage, but when the deer came in, I had a really good shot at him, uh, but Josh didn't have the camera on him, you know, or he had the camera on him, but there was a tree in the way. And so he told me not to shoot. So I kind of, I did have an opportunity prior, um, to to shoot him pretty much broadside. Um, so, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's hunting, you know, and, and you have to go with your instinct. Um, that liver hits always a hard one. I think really you have to know, you have to know, um, you know, what to do about it. I think it's a, it's a deer that is very recoverable. It's just, you, you just need to know, you know, how, how to go about those, those steps. And I've seen liver shot deer, you know, survive for a long time. So, um, so we knew, you know, we knew we had to get out and I was surprised that he was still alive when we got to him, but it didn't, it, 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 I've seen it happen before, you know, um, I don't think he had much life left. Would he have gotten up? I think he would have gotten up and he would have ran if I hadn't shot him again. But, um, I don't think he would have gotten far, you know, I mean, it would have been, it would have been a uh, pretty easy track to follow. Um, but I, I'm glad it unfolded the way it did. And I, I got that second arrow in him, and, and, um, even, you know, he's a warrior. Even after that, he, uh, you know, he still had his head up when we gave him a half an hour after I shot him right through the lungs, you know, he, he laid on the ground. He was still alive a half an hour later after, you know, 16 hour liver hit, you know, he didn't bleed at all from, from the second shot to where he laid and, and died. Um, he, he didn't have any blood left, you know? So it, these, these big mature deer are absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, Josh said it really well. He just said that they are so good at living mm-hmm. and he is, 
I mean, he couldn't have said it any better. They are just absolutely incredible survivors. Yes. They really are. Can't help but respect them, that's for sure. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. So so question for you when it comes a little bit more to the the lessons you've learned just hunting all these different islands because I got to believe that, that that some of the things you're doing are applicable to people that are hunting islands in other parts of the country. There's there's river bottom islands. There's islands in mainland lakes that might hold deer. I can think of a few in the in the Great Lake area that have deer that this might be applicable. Other than the access deal with the kayaks, are there any other little tricks that uniquely work for you when hunting islands that are different than what you do on the mainland? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess this is a two-part question. I do this as a bad habit, but that's part one of the yeah. question. <laughs> part, part two of the question is can you get away with more aggressiveness on an island because these deer live on this island? They don't want to hop in the river or hop in the water and swim to the mainland or swim to another island. They're, they're going to put up with you pushing in a little bit more. Like You're not going to blow them out of the country. Is that true or is that not true? So th- that's my two-part question. Yeah, well, let me get the second part of that first. I, You know, most of the islands that we hunt, the deer don't leave um, um, that being said, you know, deer have been spotted, you know, often by lobster men and things like that, you know, swimming, you know, from the mainland out to an island or, or, or often a, a, an island back to the mainland. But the characters that we have chased over the years have pretty much always been there. You know, they don't leave. 
Um, and, you know, the, most of these islands are, are a mile to, say, five miles offshore, you know. So it's a pretty big commitment for them to leave. I think they could leave if there was enough hunting pressure. They might choose to. Um, but but they what we have found is that they stay there um, and, and our, our pressure, um, which is really n- not a lot, um, you know, allows them to, to sort of stay, you know, in their core. Um, I don't think, I don't think we often blow them out. Um, so, uh, that is, I think probably the second part to your question. The, the, the first part, um, you know, I, there's just a lot of techniques to it, um, in strategies with this whole boat access thing. I, I think, um, I think there's a lot to gain from, from that, you, you know, from the whole, it, it, it's a lot of extra steps. I feel it's really worth it because you're going to get, you're going to find yourself in a place that, that a lot of people just aren't going to go to. Um, and that being the case, if you're hunting big mature deer, you know, that's, that's what, what we consider to be like percentage points, you know, Will and I, my son, William, we have this sort of joke where we, we do some really crazy stuff, you know, to hunt these whitetail and, um, oftentimes we'll do something and we'll look at each other and we're like, you know, this is nuts, you know, <laughs> like, can you believe we're doing this? And, and then one of us will say something like, well, it's maybe two points or maybe it's a half a point, you know? And it's like, we, we sort of stack up all these little moves and in, into these percentage points. And, you know, obviously a big piece of it, you know, I, I believe there's, there's luck involved. Right. And that's one chunk, but then there's all of this gained, you know, uh, percentage that you can do by your actions. And, um, so we, we do as much as we can. I mean, if we can think of it, we do it, you know, to sort of stack the odds in our favor. And then, you know, there's, there's really the deer, you know, and, and, um, you know, at the end of it all, it's like, you know, he gets up and walks to us. Right. So it's like, whether that's going to happen or not, I, I guess that kind of goes back into the bucket of luck, you know, but, um, that's what happens at the end. You know, we're there, we've put ourselves there, we've studied an area, we get set up, we're very portable, mobile, you know, we don't, rarely do we have stands that are just like the stand, you know, we move around a lot, we have really small, lightweight stuff, we usually use um, climbing sticks, portable climbing sticks, um, we rarely leave anything behind um, in these areas because, we, well, for one, we just, we don't want to, we don't want other people to know really where we're hunting and we just want to respect, you know, the right to be there. And so generally we walk in and walk out with our stuff. Um, so, you know, that's kind of our approach. Um, I, I, I really do believe there's a lot to be gained though, if you want to put the time in for water access. So are there any tricks you've learned over the years when it comes to water access, whether it be, you know, how you organize your kayak or I don't know. Are there anything specifically when it comes to boating or kayaking into a hunting location to make it either quieter or more efficient, more effective or safer, anything like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I will say is you you do, you do sort of have to have a a plan A and a plan B and you have to be flexible um, because the water, you know, just poses, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of risk. Um, and so 
rarely do or we ever in a situation where we don't have gear even if we're checking cameras you know we have a water bag that's got a sleeping bag and stuff like that in it and you know be just be prepared to to not be able to sort of you know execute plan a and know that maybe it's going to be plan b i mean we've been stuck out on islands for three or four days longer than we wanted to be um just because of weather um so you know i i think that um the, the safety, I think, is one that I would say you really, really have to have that organized. You know, navigation is really important. We have a lot of fog in Maine. Um, there are times when, you know, it's like we call a pea soup. You know, you just can't even see anything in front of you. And, you know, without, like, we use Onyx religiously. I mean, that 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 app is absolutely incredible for us. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, there are times when we're in a kayak and you can't see the shore. You know, and you're like, well, you know, or, or you can't see your point of access. Like we're, we have to paddle for 20 minutes, say, down the coast line and, you know, hit our hit our trail to go into a stand. And you can't see anything, you know, and the Onyx brings us. It's it's absolutely incredible. It brings us right to our spot. You know, um, a lot of these a lot of these islands, you know, we don't have a trail network. So, you know, a lot of times we're just walking through timber to find our spot. Um, that we've marked, you know, uh, earlier or the year before or something like that. Um, but being flexible, I think is, is really, is really important for the whole Island or boat, boat approach. Um, having a seaworthy boat, having uh, a secondary sort of means of, of safety, whether it's a, a rubber boat in tow or whether it's a, a kayak, like these sit on tops that we've been using is absolutely critical um, I know when we first started doing this, we didn't have any of that stuff figured out. We used to get out there and pull our boat up above the high tide line. And, and then we, you know, when it was time to go, we'd have to wait, you know, for the tide to be high to push it back in and all that, you know, uh, now we anchor our boat offshore and we've learned to trust our anchors, which is not always easy to do. <laughs> so, man, yeah. It seems it seems like a fascinating way to hunt. Um, now that said, you you're finding big old bucks on these islands, but you're also finding big old bucks on the mainland too. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I, I know the trail camera aspect is the same across both, but what about where you're finding these deer or where they're bedding or feeding? Um, are there any other things now when we're moving to the mainland that change when it comes to your hunting strategy or finding these deer? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I would sort of add to that a little bit and say that, that the, the real attraction for us with the Island thing is that we can start hunting in September. Okay. So, so the mainland season opens in Maine in, in October, the mainland bow season. Um, so, you know, we, we can hunt for an entire month out on the islands you know, prior to the mainland season opening. So that is, that is really a big attraction to us because we get a whole extra month of hunting and we get, you know, deer movement that is, you know, I mean, there's a lot that changes between September and October and then November. And so we really love that month of September. Um, so in order to do it, we have to go to these islands, you know, so then, you know, in October it starts to get colder and we're hunting the mainland. I think we probably have more opportunity for big deer on the mainland than we do on the islands. Um, I don't, I don't think that, that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's stacked in our favor on these islands, 
we've been successful, but, um, but I think you really, in terms of finding big deer and, and it's, it's a lot easier to move around for us on the mainland, you know, I mean, we can drive 20 minutes in one direction or 20 minutes in another direction to hunt a piece of ground. Um, you know, usually when you're on an Island, you're there, you're stuck there. That's, that's the piece that you're hunting. Uh, it's rare for us to move from one Island to another during a trip. You know, we don't generally do that. Um, but we can do that on the mainland. You know, we can one, one day we can be working on a particular deer in one area. And, and two days later we can be in an entirely different zone because the winds changed, you know? Um, so, so, but we do, we, we, um, you know, we, we get right after it, um, in October on the mainland. Um, we, we generally, you know, have gotten our Island fill, um, you know, by the end of September, um, and then we come back, you know, and start hunting the mainland pretty hard. So it seems like from the outside looking in that it's just hard to find bigger or older deer in the Northeast. It's just, it's just harder to find them. There maybe aren't as many antler growth is different than the Midwest. Uh, so a lot of guys struggle just to find any buck that we, we've already talked about how you, how you find some of these deer with the cameras, but how do you actually find those spots where the big old boys are? Is it, is it simply just listening to the cameras or are there certain zones or do you have to get so many miles off a road or do you have to get so far into the mountains or anything that yeah. you found that's unique to where you find the big old guys? No, I, I, I mean, I think they can really surprise you. I think they can be right under your nose sometimes. Um, you know, we shot uh, a few years ago, we shot on the mainland. We shot a deer that we only had a relationship with for two years. Um, he was 12 and a half years old. And um, we, we, uh, we zeroed in pretty quickly on where his home range was. Um, we didn't shoot him the first year, obviously. The second year... Um, we ended up shooting him, uh, at the end of, uh, it was Thanksgiving day. So it was pretty much the end of the rut. And, um, he had come back. He had left for a while during the rut. Uh, I don't like hunting the rut. It's in Maine, uh, or in the Northeast in general. I really don't because we can't see very much, you know, uh, a lot of times we're hunting in these stands, you know, our effective range, you know, is, is, you know, maybe 50 yards. A lot of times, you know, most of what we hunt is a bow seat, you know, even with our guns. So, um, we just can't see very far. Um, so, so, you know, you get a rut, you get rutting activity going on and you're not seeing it, you know, it's happening. It, it happens like it, you know, happens in the Midwest. And, and I, I love to hunt in Illinois because I love to see, I love to see all that stuff, you know, in Maine, we just, we just kind of have to, imagine that it's happening. <laughs> we know it's happening. <laughs> yeah. We just can't see it. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so, you know, but that deer, that, that deer that I'm talking about, we called him the Ranger and we didn't have a lot of experience with him. He wasn't, he wasn't deep, deep in the woods. I mean, he was, you know, from, from our parking spot, he was a uh, 35 minute walk into the woods, you know, that's to, to us, that's not very far, you know, um, and he, he was basically, he had developed that home range because of hunting pressure. Um, that's really what pushes him into that, pushed him into that zone. Just a place that, that people didn't easily get up into. It was kind of overlooked. And, um, you know, and we figured that out about him. I mean, I think, you know, you start to 
you start to read the, the land, you know, when you, when you study it. And, um, that, that was pretty obvious to us. And, um, you know, I, I really wanted to shoot that deer with my, with my bow. I hunted them the first two weeks, uh, during the gun season. I hunt, I continued to hunt them with my bow and, um, I knew I was making it harder on myself, but I really wanted to get them with my bow. And then it got, it got really cold and I, I started to get tired and, um, I started taking my gun and, and I ended up shooting that deer at 18 yards with my rifle <laughs> <laughs> from my stand. So and he was 12 and a half years old. He was, you know, a big old, big old Maine whitetail is like just the biggest blockiest head you could imagine. Um, just a tank, absolute tank. I think he dressed, it was like two, two twelve or something like that, but he was, he'd been run out. He was, he was a tired old man when I caught up with him. He wow. had his head hanging low. Yeah. Yeah. Can, so. can you describe that, that tree setup? Because you killed that buck there. And then your buddy, I think, I think Josh, yep. he killed one in this recent season of sea bucks from that same tree I heard. And then I think, that I remember hearing one of you guys mention that your son shot or missed a buck there too. So what makes this spot other than the pressure pushing deer into it? Tell me about the exact setup. What makes that so good? Why are these deer coming by your tree like that? Yep. That's a great question. Um, it's a knoll. Um, it's just a, it's kind of a go between kind of spot. There's not a lot of food there. Um, but we do, we have, uh, we have some food, you know, we have some oak trees, like there's an oak stand not far from there. Um, I, you know, it's a pinch to us, but it's not a pinch that you would identify, like that you would walk in and say, Oh, look, the deer are going to be pushed down in here because there, it, it's not an obvious pinch, but, um, but it, it's, it, it's hard for me to describe that, but, but, you know, we have those obvious pinches and we have found that, that the deer really don't like them they just don't want to go through them. And over the years we've, we've, we've stayed away from those kind of spots, but this is sort of, this is the sort of acceptable pinch, <laughs> you know, that whitetail will tolerate. So, I mean, it, it has, it has that piece going for it. Um, but it's nondescript. I mean, you know, it's, it's open, it's mature pine spruce. Um, it's, it, it's a little bit of high ground that has a little bit of swamp edge to it. There is an edge. There is a, there is a definition that happens in there. And I think that's why the deer like to travel on it because it, there's a swampy, you know, piece that then, you know, kind of bleeds into like mature pine spruce. Um, William missed a big buck up there. You know, I shot the ranger there. Josh shot patches there last year. Um, I think they just dropped that episode and that, that was, that was a really great hunt. He was, you know, that, that deer that morning was with another deer that we've hunted. They called, we call them slick. And, um, we had both of those deer 20 yards, you know, I mean, it was like, that's an incredible day in Maine, you know, I mean, you know, in the Northeast, that's, that's an incredible day, you know? Um, so, but, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't walk through a spot like that and go, Oh, this is, this is it. This is where I need to set up. It's it. I think, you know, it, it came to us be, by just trying it, you know, and having a lot of encounters. Um, we did run some cameras in there and we realized that there was, you know, we call them hundred year trails, you know, they're, 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 they're really established deer trails. Um, 
but that being said, the deer aren't just hammering them every day, but um, they're, 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 they're trails that represent to us um, a connection between kind of like one zone and another zone. And this is kind of in the middle, you know, in between those two things. So, so we get deer that are moving through, they're not going to stay there for very long. Um, so that, that's, that, that's a really incredible spot. Um, and hunting pressure is what pushes those deer up into that zone, you know? So, so that's where, you know, that's where things change, you know, things change so much throughout the season because, you know, those deer aren't really there early, you know, they, they start to get up in there once people are, are, climbing around in trees, you know, and, and walking in and out and driving four wheelers around and making a lot of noise, you know, that's what pushes them up in there. So what are some of the, you mentioned that this is kind of an acceptable pinch and it's, it's, it's not obvious, but it's, it pushes deer through there a little bit. It seems like that's one of the big things that folks need to look for in big woods scenarios is you're not going to see the obvious, but there's these little terrain features or habitat edges inside the big woods that can yeah. kind of pinch or influence deer movement. Are there any other examples of that that you've seen over the years that you could describe for us just to kind of paint the picture of other things that guys or girls should be looking for like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think, I think when you're looking at, at the land, you know, everybody has a different, uh, amount of ground that they can hunt you know i mean we're talking about you know hundreds of acres okay so so you know that's 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 where we start to zero in you know a lot of our habitat in maine is is kind of all of the same you know it, it it doesn't change a lot we have this you know mature pine spruce forest and you know it's rare to then transition into hardwoods but if you can find that if you can find where you have a whole lot of something that's the same and then you can zero in on where it changes. That's, that's really what you want to look for because that's, that's what the deer, you know, there's less of that, right? So that, so that's going to be attractive to the deer for, for a number of reasons, you know, just because of daylight, you know, because of sunlight, because of a uh, different food source, because of the change, you know, that's happening when you transition from one to the other. Um, that's, that's really the key. And so we look, you know, we look for that. We can say, oh, this is 200 acre block of, you know, mature pine spruce. It's all dead, rotten and blowing over. Well, I mean, that's great deer habitat, but they need more than that. So then we start saying, okay, well, where, you know, where does it change? What what are the, what are the, you know, is there a field? Is there a meadow out here? Is there a swamp? You know, and then we start studying those areas, you know, where, where, where it changes. Um, but the, the big mature, you know, pine spruce forest, it's all blowing down is great bedding for deer. I mean, they love that stuff. You can't get anywhere near them, you know, um, cause you're climbing over, you know, trees and, um, you're just making too much noise. You know, they're gone way before you ever get there. So, um, I think, I think, you know, and that's hard because, you know, some people have a, a 50 acre block of woods that they can hunt and maybe it's all the same. Maybe there is no difference, you know, in what they have. Um, but, but trying to find just subtle differences, subtle changes, I think is going to be really helpful for people to do. Um, because the deer, you know, it's, it's their home, you know, I mean, they know, they know where that is and that's where they're going to be. So do you have, do you have a favorite example 
of of something like that other than the ranger stand we just talked about that one but is there another favorite example of a big woods tree setup that you have hunted in the past or that you hunted once but you realize oh this is perfect um anything ideal that kind of illustrates those things you just discussed that comes to mind well i will say there's spots that just are attractive and like visually attractive where you want to hunt and and i i still get like um steered by those you know driven to those but often they're not you know the best you know spot to to have an encounter you know it's like you know they're visually they're great they're like you know on the edge of a on a on a stream or or um you know on a big meadow where you can see way out into the meadow um and and you know you look at that and you go this would be a great place to sit and it is a great place to sit but it's probably not going to be um, the best place to have, you know, multiple encounters right. with big deer. So, um, but I don't think I could really, you know, I don't, I don't know that I could draw a, a picture of, of, of that. I mean, I sign, you know, we just get really excited when we see a lot of sign, you know, and, and then we start, everything starts happening based on that, you know, um, our food sources change a lot over the years here. You know, we don't, it's not like, we have crops that the deer are, you know, maybe there's a rotation between corn and beans and wheat, but, but, you know, we don't have that. Right. So we have, um, we have, you know, pretty much, you know, acorns, apples, and then we have all the browse that's in the woods, but then, you know, we go from there, we go to, um, we go to, um, you know, fields. We do have fields. We have, you know, we do use some food plots. You know, there's certain times of the year where that can be, certain times of the season that that can be really beneficial. Um, clovers are kind of go-to in Maine because, you know, with, with the seasons, with the winter and stuff that we have, it seems to be the the, the feed of choice, you know, and a food plot for deer. So, you know. Back to something you said a second ago, uh, when it comes to sign, that's when you guys get really excited is when you see a lot of sign. What, what qualifies, what qualifies as a lot of sign in your part of the country and what kind of sign? I mean, what I would see in Michigan that would get me excited might be very different than what would get you excited in Maine. What, what exactly are you looking for that turns you on in that kind of way? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the obvious, you know, uh, droppings, you know, um, I mean, that's one, you know, thing that really jumps out when you're in the woods and you see fresh, you know, deer droppings all over the place, an area that's tracked up. Um, I mean, we do get pretty excited when we find an area that, you know, is kind of a, um, a rubbing area, you know, for deer where there's multiple rubs. Um, I don't think we really, you know, develop hunting strategy off of that. You know, it's pretty rare for us to hunt a rub line. Um, but we will hunt scrapes, you know, that's something that, um, you know, and that's such a great place to put a camera, right? Because, you know, all the deer are checking in. So in a very short period of time, you're going to gain a lot of knowledge on what's there and what's using it. Um, so, um, that's the kind of sign, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not, it's not seeing deer. It's just seeing the, the, the effects that they've had from being there. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Speaking of seeing deer, here's another thing I've struggled with, I guess, at times, because I do some big woods hunting myself up in northern Michigan, and uh, I'm still figuring out. I can't say I've got it nailed by any form or fashion, but one of the right. things that I struggle with is the fact that there's just lower deer numbers up there, and you can't see very far, like you already mentioned, and you know, deer could be anywhere in that stretch. So you can't see them. There's not a lot of yeah. them, and it's really hard to nail down exactly where they are, because they don't pattern quite the same as farmland deer. So because of that, Here's my question. I imagine you could sit a lot of days, or I'm sure you have days where you see nothing, or you see one deer. And the question is, how much time do you give a good-looking spot? How many sits without seeing a shooter buck would you be willing to hang out in a place or return to a place if you're just not seeing what you want? Is I got to imagine you have to have more patience than you might have in Iowa, where if I don't see what I want to see on day one, I'm moving in 100 yards or something like that. What's your approach there? Right, right. Yeah, so um, I'll give you an example. Last season, um, we hunted, we were scrape hunting on a particular, um, we were looking for a particular deer, and Josh and I sat for, not back-to-back weeks, but we basically sat for two weeks straight on a scrape, on the same scrape. Um, We, I don't think we saw a deer the whole time on that scrape. You know, we never had it and we never had an encounter. Um, and so, you know, were we discouraged? Yes. But, um, we also knew what, what the potential was, you know, we knew if he was, if he was, if he was there, he was going to come, he was going to walk by that scrape. 
you know, now this is a deer we don't have a lot of experience with. We've only really been hunting him for, um, this was the, this was really the first year last year that we were hunting him. Um, and he had, he had been to this scrape the year before and he had torn it up, you know? So, um, we were putting a lot of eggs in one basket. Um, I think that's scrape hunting, you know, uh, it, it's, I think it's worth your time, but, um, I don't know. I think everybody has a different tolerance for how much they're going to put up with, you know, um, it's pretty hard to sit for two weeks at five, five hours at a time, you know, maybe you come out and have a little break, you know, and then go back in. Uh, but you know, from, from sun up to sundown on a scrape for, for two weeks, I think that's, that's borderline crazy, but <laughs> you know, but we knew what the potential was, you know? So, um, I, I don't know. I, you know, William shoots a big deer at the end of the season. It's going to be one of the last episodes. He shoots it in Maine. He'd come back from Alaska. He did 65 days in Alaska with Donnie Vincent. You know, William is Donnie's um, director of photography. And um, he started with Donnie, you know, 10 years ago. If, it, if it's on film, pretty much William filmed it for Donnie. And he came back at the end of the season last year. Um, he was back for like the last, maybe, maybe week and a half of gun season. Um, and, um, jumped off of a plane, grabbed his gun the next morning and was in the woods and we were trying to keep up with him, you know, Josh and myself filming and, um, and that was a deer that, um, we had hunted for a number of years. We'd never seen, I think we were hunt, we had four years of of, um, observation on him. And we've been looking for him for four years. Um, and, um, I don't know. I lost my thought, Mark. Well, you're talking <laughs> Where about, were you going? yeah, you were talking about this example of, of whale getting after this buck in the late season and, and how it may be related to the question of how oh, long, yeah, how much time, how much time yeah, in a spot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll back up. And so, yeah. So, so William jumps off the plane and uh, goes after this deer that, you know, we had never gotten eyes on. Uh, we knew a lot about him. We'd hunted him for four years. And um, we were sitting, I was hunting with him that morning, and um, I wasn't with William. Josh was filming William. I was by myself. And I had texted William. Oh, I, I texted William, and I said, William, it's it's feeling really impossible. I just, I'm, I'm getting, I'm wearing out. It's really feeling possible. Well, impossible. Well, 10 minutes later, I sent him a text and I said, William, I just saw a giant out in the heat. You know, I said, I, I didn't have a good shot. I didn't take it, but he's out there. And William texted me and Josh, they were literally out of the tree within like 10 minutes. They were on the ground and they embarked in like a two hour, you know, hike in around the backside of this heat to get into position. And they killed that deer in the, that afternoon. You know, I saw him at, at 10 o'clock in the morning and, um, they got into position and they got on him, and, um, you know, they, 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 they end up killing this deer. He's an absolute giant, you know, that we've been after for a long time. So, um, I know, I think you have to move. Sometimes you have to move, but it's, it's instinct. I mean, you just, you just, you know, you, it's like somebody's knocking on your shoulder and saying, Hey, you got to get out of this tree and go somewhere else. And, 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 uh, Sometimes you do, you know, so, but I don't know. I can get, I think, I think we hang on longer than we generally want to, but, but it, it sometimes pays off. Yeah. 
would it would you say that well let me tell you, let me take a step back what you're describing seems very different than what a lot of people do elsewhere where there's higher deer numbers and you're seeing a lot more deer oftentimes they'll, they'll hunt a stand once and if they don't kill them the first day or the second time they hunt it they're like ah it's not going to happen here because the deer react to that pressure so quickly do you are you able to get away with longer sits or, or more sits in the same place simply because there's lower deer numbers and oftentimes probably these deer are ranging further so that deer you're after he might not even be within a mile or two for your first three hunts but on the fourth day that's the one day he comes through and he has no idea you've been there and now you get to crack at him is that is that kind of the the thought process behind why that can work for you guys well i think you know again this this is has a lot to do with you know which month you're hunting in but certainly later in the season that's I think very much the case, you know, that, um, you could hunt, you know, you could hunt a week straight and, and, you know, you, and you might not have an encounter with that animal, but it's probably because he wasn't there, you know, as long as you're covering all your bases with wind and all that stuff. Um, so, so, you know, I think if we feel like we're, we're over pressuring a spot, it makes good sense to, to leave it alone and get out of there, you know? Um, if you've really pushed it, you know, if the wind is switched direction or if you've gotten busted, I mean, you know, we all know what that's like to have, you know, deer blowing at you. And, you know, I mean, if we have deer blowing at us, I mean, we pretty much write that spot off for a while, you know, um, because, you know, it's blown out. Um, so, you know, I, I think the Northeast probably does offer a little more, um, sort of tolerance with the deer, you know, they will probably put up with us a little bit more, but, you know, I'm not really well equipped to answer that because I don't have a lot of Midwest, you know, sort of hunting experience. I mean, I, I do hunt some in the Midwest. Um, usually it's during the rut and, you know, a lot of the deer that I've shot in, in like Illinois and stuff, you know, um, are probably from another farm or three farms away, you know, uh, cause they're just running and, um, so I don't, yeah, yeah. Speaking of the, speaking of the difference between like a Midwest hunting tactic and those in the Northeast, what about some of those more aggressive, um, bring the deer to you type tactics? I, you know, in a spot like the big woods yeah. of Maine where you can't see very far, it could be very tempting to call and rattle a lot because you want to bring something into range that maybe is out there, but you have no idea. Is that something that works for you guys? Is that a, is that taboo? What's your take on that? Um, yeah, so I haven't had a lot of success with that. Um, but, but I, I do rattle some, you know, early in, early in the season. Um, and I always carry a grunt tube. Um, and I, you know, but, but, but generally when I'm using either one of those things, I feel like I'm working against myself. Um, and that's, that I think has just a lot to do with a personal, you know, preference. It's sort of, you know, I just, I, I just feel like, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to fool a whitetail, you know, can it happen? Sure. You know, particularly younger deer, you know, if you rattle, are you going to, are you going to rattle in a three-year-old? Yeah. Pro good chance that that's going to happen. But a big mature whitetail, he's got it figured out. He knows if there's other deer over there fighting and he, he you know, he's probably not going to come over there and try to clear house. You know, he's just going to walk away. You know, he's just going to, 
it's just going to take the other, the other trail, you know? So I personally, I don't do a lot of that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So oftentimes it's all about finding those edges, those slight pinches, the things that in some way move deer to where you can predict to, to some degree. But what about those times when that's not in the cards and you actually get on the ground and go to the deer? I know that you've done some tracking. That's something that I'm fascinated by. It's something I want to try this year. Um, can you talk me through you know, your approach to that? When When sure. is that a tactic you turn to and how exactly do you pull it off? You know, Is it a you wake up one morning and you're like, ooh, there's a bunch of snow, today I'm tracking. Or is it more so you're walking to a stand and you cross a track and you decide, oh, you know what, I'll take advantage of that? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, it's definitely something that we, we love to do. Um, we're not often given the chance here on the coast because, you know, we have this sort of, uh, it's almost like a lake effect, you know, with the snow. Um, it's not that we don't get that opportunity. And you, and generally when we do, we, we seize it, you know, we, we get on it. We like, uh, we like a few inches of fresh, you know, soft snow. And, um, we, we definitely love to track. Um, a few years ago we had, just a fantastic day. Josh, Will, and I, we were all together. Uh, we broke up first light. We broke up in the morning and, uh, all looking for tracks. And within the, within the first 45 minutes, I had it, I had a huge track and, uh, I was trying to get Will's attention and Josh's attention. And, and, um, Will said, I've got a really great track and I just saw him. <laughs> so it was like, so I, I left my track and we went to Will's cause he had, a, he'd gotten a look at the deer and, um, you know, we tracked that deer all day. We had eight miles. It was, it was the eighth mile before we shot him. Um, and he made two classic mistakes, or I should say we made two classic mistakes, um, that we didn't capitalize on, um, you know, uh, early on in that track. And, um, and we, we knew, we said, well, we're probably not going to get a third chance but we we're going to keep after it. And it mistakes? was like three o'clock that afternoon we shot him. Well, I mean, one, he was bedded on a knoll up on a hillside. Uh, he'd done, you know, the typical went up on a hill, he banked, he hooked off to the right and he watched us walk right up the hill. And, uh, it's not that we weren't looking for him and we don't know that, you know, the deer do that. We just didn't see him. You know, we got up to the top of the hill, his tracks broke, right. We walked 30 yards over to the right and there was his bed and we could look down and we could see right where our tracks were coming up the snow. And so obviously he looked right at us, went off the backside and, you know, then, then, you know, mistake number two, this is a classic right then. Look, there were three of us. So I probably should have, or Josh should have, one of us should have just sat down, you know, right there and just waited. But we tracked that deer over the backside of that hill around and he button hooked back around, got right on his trail and came right back up our tracks. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that was the, that was the classic, you know, mistake number two. And if somebody had just sat tight there, they, the deer would have walked right to him, you know? Um, and then it was, you know, it was a few miles later. Um, and I think really where our opportunity, you know, went in our direction was that he joined up with three or four does and he got distracted and, um, 
we were able to sort of get get up in front of him. And uh, William was tracking. William had tracked that deer the whole time. Um, and um, I was I was up ahead. I knew the terrain a little bit, and I got up ahead. And um, that deer came, you know, came up through with those does, and I and I was able to shoot him. Um, but that was a seven-year-old, you know, mature, real heavy, heavy main deer. So we love to track, you know, and the Northwoods is, is great. Oftentimes we have to go, you know, we have to drive an hour or two to get up into, you know, spots where the tracking's really good. Um, and if we do do that, you want to be, you know, you want to be set up to spend the night, um, you know, if you're on a really good track and you're deep into the woods, you know, and it's, you know, a half an hour left of shooting light, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is to just drop and just camp right there. Um, and then take the track up in the morning because, you know, if you have to walk out, there's a good chance you're not going to, you're not going to walk back in and get on that track again the next day. Um, but you, you, you can be assured that if you track them all day, you're, you're close, you know, you're, you're closing the distance. And um, so, you know, that's that's something that we love to do. We just don't get the opportunity as much. It's also really hard to film yeah, <laughs> um, it, for, for whatever reason. It's just really complicated. You it, you know, you'll see Brett, uh, one of our, our teammates with Seabox, you know, he shoots a, a giant in New Hampshire and he tracked them. Um, and it's just really complicated, you know, to pull all that together, um, and get the shot and everything else. So, so, you know, because of, because of our, uh, engagement with Seabucks, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not our, our first go-to, you know, but it is something that we love to do. You know, we really do. Yeah. I got to get a little more detail on the hows of that. So when you start out on a day when you're going to do that and and you said, in that example, you described the three of you split up to look for a big track. Um, where are you going to find one of these big tracks? Are you just driving roads till you see one cross a road? Or do you walk out into an area you know where you think there should be a deer and, and hopefully catch that big track? Like, how does that process start? Yeah, great question. So so that particular story I was telling you about was actually on an island. Um, and it was like, it was the, everything was just perfectly lined up. You know, William happened to be here. Um, Josh was here, I was here. So that was a big thing that we got to hit on that. And then we got some snow. Um, and there was, there was an Island that we really wanted to go to. There were two deer out there that we were, were, were really after, uh, two big mature deer. And so that's what, that's what, you know, took us in that direction. But that, you know, we've been trying to do that for years, you know, to get out onto these islands and do some tracking. And it's just the conditions are, are, it's so hard to get that to line up. So if we're tracking on the mainland, that's ex- what you said is exactly the way to do it is go up north, uh, get on some of these logging roads um, and pretty much drive the road or walk the road if you, if you can't drive it and just find a big track. Um, and, you know, if, once you start studying these tracks, you start, you start to kind of get an idea of which one you want to take and which one you don't want to take. And um, but that's that's the best method, you know, um, cover a lot of ground, you know, early on and until you find the track you want. And then it's all on foot from there on out. How, how do you tell if it's a track you want, how big does it have to be? How do you determine how fresh it is? How new of a track does it have to be to be, you know, of your, you know, worth your time? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the size of the track is, is, you know, generally the first thing you're looking at, you know? Um, and then, you know, you, based on, on, on that, you can, um, you can look at the stride. Um, you can try to make assessments based on how much snow there is. If there's not a lot of snow, if he's dragging his feet, you know, if he's tired, you know, those are all things that play into it. And then, you know, a lot of it has to do with where he's going, where you think he's going and how huntable he is, um, uh, based on the train that he's going into. So, um, I think that, you know, is, 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 is really a big part of it is, you know, do you know the train and, and is it, you know, huntable, you know? Um, and then, you know, you have to basically accept the fact that you don't know who this deer is, you know, you don't, you most likely don't have any kind of relationship with them. So, um, could he be a three-year-old? Yeah. Could you have mistaken that three-year-old track for a, for a five-year-old track? Absolutely. And so you have to be at a point, you know, where you're willing to accept that, you know, you might end up shooting a three-year-old because oftentimes you, you don't have the time to, to really study the deer when he gets up. You know, I mean, it could be such that you do, but good chance that you don't. Um, you're going to shoot a running deer, so you have to be willing to accept that as well. Um, that's not always going to go just the way you want it to. Um, so you have to be prepared for that. You, you really, you know, you have snow on the ground, so that's working in your favor. If you don't happen to make a, a favorable shot, you know, there's still a good chance you're going to be able to stay on that deer because of the snow. Um, but there's just, there's less control, you know, with that whole tracking game. Um, I mean, we really do love it, but, you know, we're not engaging with deer that we know, you know, characters that we've sort of identified with. Um, so it, it, you know, it's not our, it's not our number one go-to, but it's something that as the season, you know, goes on, it's really fun to get into new country and, and, and uh explore like that and so we definitely like the track yeah yeah it, it sounds like a lot of fun so I, I gotta believe or i hope that there's some people listening to this that hunt some kind of big wood situation whether it's in the northeast or maybe big woods in the upper great lakes or big i don't know pine plantations or something down the southern part of the united states where they've got lots of timber and not the usual easier to figure stuff out stuff like maybe you've gotten patchwork ag land so i'm i'm imagining this audience member right now and let's say they're a relatively new hunter so they're, they're loving it but they just have not figured out this big woods kind of scenario which which most of what we've talked about today revolves around something like that whether it's on an island or the mainland and this person this audience member i'm going to sit him or her down in front of you right now john you're looking this person in the face and you have an opportunity to leave them with three things you can call them three lessons or three rules or the three commandments right. the three commandments of john altman's big woods hunting philosophy these are the only things that you want this person to walk away from today what would be those three most important takeaways? Takeaways. Okay. Um, so I think, uh, you know, if they want to hunt big, mature whitetail, they're going to have to have a lot of patience. They're going to have to have a lot of family support. I mean, that's one thing that, you know, we're all really fortunate. Like, 
you know, it's a, it's a huge commitment. And, um, I mean, we've built our lives around, you know, hunting these big mature deer and, you know, we're hunting them, we're collecting information on them. We're getting ready for these hunts. It's a 365, you know, commitment. It really is where it's, it's just, it, it's, it's, 24-7. And, you know, that makes it into our homes. Everybody has to, you know, s- sort of be behind it and support it or else you're just, you're, you know, you're just putting up with resistance. And so, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about how important it is to be kind of united on this front if you want to hunt big, mature whitetail. So I think that would be number one is to have, have that support. My wife puts up with so much you know, because of my passion for chasing these big deer around. Um, and so that, that is a really, really important one. Um, and I think, you know, with that comes just patience. It just, you know, don't think that you need to, um, that you're going to be successful right away. I said, I feel like these big deer, um, they take, they, they take a huge commitment. You have to build, sort of a, a relationship with them. You have to start to identify them as characters and, 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 and how they, um, respond to, to pressure, to weather conditions they're, they're, they're like humans, you know, they, they're all different. I mean, you have really social deer and you have deer that just don't want to have anything to do with anybody. And so you have to, you have to accept that you're going to have to figure that out about the deer. Um, and so I think that would be number two is just kind of an, uh, 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 an incredible amount of patience. And then, um, you know, I think number three is just being really proficient, you know, being able to make, um, you know, quick decisions, being able to move, being able to, you know, have lightweight setups, being able to adjust your plan. Um, you know, it's not, there's not two sides to this coin. There's, there's, there's multiple you know, sides, you know, it, it's, it's, it's always going to change. It's always going to evolve. And so being flexible, I think is, is, you know, really important and being, you know, flexible and proficient, you know, whether you're a bow hunter or a gun hunter or both, it's just being really connected with that equipment and gear, um, knowing that, you know, if you, if your, uh, string loop, you know, falls off your bow know how to tie it on again you know don't don't feel like you have to go to the bow shop to have that done you know connect with your equipment understand how it works um i mean that you know if you can eliminate that you know you know that sort of concern about your gear know know it well enough that you know how to fix it you know when it's not working right you know if if something doesn't look right if you can eliminate that, then you can be so much more focused in the, in the moment, um, you know, to make that shot or to make that decision that's going to get you to, to the point where you can make that shot. So I think it's just a, it's just an overwhelming uh, a commitment that you have to make, you know, to, to hunt these big deer. I think that's really, really kind of all wrapped up in one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the <laughs> be truth. Be ready to commit. Very true. All right, John. Well, this has been, uh, really interesting it makes me even more excited for my potential trip up to the northeast this winter that i'm excited about um but if people are hearing this oh that's good yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna try some of the stuff out myself in in new york or maine i think but um 
if people are listening and they are interested in following along with what you got going on or watching some of these hunts we've talked about, where can they find all this and, and learn more about what, what you've got up going on? Sure. Well, we have a, a website, uh, mainhunter.com, and that showcases us pretty well. It, it talks about um, different projects that we're engaged with. It has information about us personally, you know, um, some of our thoughts and beliefs. And then, you know, it talks about workshops and things like that that we offer. Um, and then, obviously, we have a, an Instagram account, um, Main Hunter Official. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to be better about all of that stuff. I, I often say, you know, it's not our forte, you know, we're, we're the guys that are in the trees, uh, you know, not so much doing that stuff, but we're trying, we realize the, the power that, that, uh, is sort of behind it all. So we're, we're trying to, to be more present on that front. Um, but that's how you can find us. And, and I always encourage people to call, you know, I love to talk on the phone. Uh, I love to hear, hear about different stories that, you know, are going on for different people with, with their pursuits. So, um, we're available, you know, that way people can find us, you know, perfect. And what about the show Seabucks? Where can they see that? Yeah. So Seabucks, um, is on the, uh, Realtree 365 platform. Um, it's a 16 episode series that we made in the Northeast. Um, we have, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of showcase the, the variety of hunting that exists in the Northeast on the Eastern seaboard. So it goes from Maine down to New Hampshire and then into Massachusetts. Um, and obviously we've talked a lot about Maine, the New Hampshire's piece of it, you know, is, is pretty much mountain hunting in New Hampshire. And then we get down into Massachusetts, which is really a whole nother sort of approach and that's an urban style hunting. Um, there's definitely big mature whitetails, you know, in some of those urban areas. And it comes with a whole nother sort of package of goods in terms of being successful at that. Um, so, so we're, we're trying to sort of showcase, you know, the, the different, the di- sort of different segments of the Northeast. I think a lot of people can relate to it. I think it's, 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 you know, it, it just sort of hits the nail right on the head to a lot of really, uh, you know, avid enthusiasts uh, uh, that, that are pursuing whitetail. So we're really happy about it. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Um, we've got some great ideas for this upcoming season. Um, I think it's gonna. It looks like it's gonna stay there on that platform, the Realtree 365 platform, and it may be um, in some other spots, maybe on Carbon, and we're probably gonna have it on a YouTube channel as well. So that's where you can kind of look for it uh, this upcoming season. Very cool. Awesome. Well, from what I've seen so far, I've really liked it. So I uh, would encourage people to check that out if this has been intriguing. And uh, John, all I got to say now is thank you. I appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. It was really great to talk with you, Mark. This is a lot of fun. Good luck this upcoming season. Thanks a lot. All right. And that will do it. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you all for listening. Much more to come in the upcoming weeks and months leading into hunting season. I can't wait. Hopefully you're as excited as I am. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You 
can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 